Well, the, the, the content is, of course, uh, horrific. I mean, it's actually more horrific than, than you expect. Hello and welcome to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International. My name is Evelyn McCleverty and every month I'll be bringing you an interview spotlighting legals and the work they do. Our main aim was to ensure that the truth is told. The truth is the essence of justice. We're talking firstly to Irish barrister and international judge Fergal Gaynor. The legal issues are fascinating. I met Fergal at his home in The Hague, where we talked about the work he's done over the last two decades. Quite frankly, securitisation of asset-backed receivables sometimes is not quite as exciting as you'd wish it was. Um, Fergal has worked at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, represented victims before the International Criminal Court and investigated crimes in Syria and Myanmar. Trustees are committed by ordinary people. Fergal currently works as the Reserve Chief Prosecutor at the Extraordinary Chambers of the Courts in Cambodia, commonly known as the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, and he sits as a judge at the Kosovo Specialist Chambers. I think really we need to be putting more resources into preventing these mass atrocities taking place. Fergal is Irish, born in Malawi, and in 2021 he was nominated by Ireland for the job as Chief Prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. He missed out, but remains ever curious about people and the workings of justice. Virgil, you're nearly 20 years working with inter- within international criminal justice. You would have started around the time of the establishment of the International Criminal Court here in The Hague. Why did you decide to, to go down that path when international criminal justice in its current form at the ICC was in its relative infancy? Well, I started because... I thought that this was the most interesting area of law that I had uh, encountered. And um, what happened was I did a master's degree during which I looked at the statute of the Yugoslavia Tribunal and the statute of the Rwanda Tribunal from the perspective of an accused who's making an argument that they are applying law which didn't exist uh, at the time that he committed the crime. It's known as the principle of uh, retroactivity. And um, when I did that thesis, I had no sense that I could ever get a job in that field. Uh, and so I went off into a corporate law firm in London because that was really one of the few options available to you uh, and got qualified and then tried to get back into the international criminal justice field. And then, to my great delight, that did happen in 2001. So it was as a result of the masters? Well, I was born in Malawi and sort of did my primary education in Swaziland. And then we moved back to uh, Malawi. So during those teenage years when I was on holidays from uh, boarding school in Ireland, we were travelling a lot in different parts of Africa. And you would see, um, you know, quite serious levels of poverty, uh, especially in Malawi, which remains quite a a poor place. So um, I was initially interested more in development and looking in particular at the role of the World Bank and the IMF in Africa. So that was my initial sort of career plan, was to go and work for the World Bank in Africa. But eventually you find that because I had done a law degree and then I became qualified as a lawyer, and I realized that the best thing I could do was to get into the international criminal justice field. So I did that, and it's been enormously enjoyable as a career choice. I don't have any regrets. How did you go from your master's to working at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. How did that all come about? Well, as, as I say to students um, these days who ask about career advice, a lot of it is about just relentless applying for jobs. And this, of course, is back in the days. We had to type out your 
application letter, go down the road, with, get a stamp and put it into the postbox. It wasn't as simple as simply pressing send on your computer now. So I made many, many applications to the Yugoslavia Tribunal and the Rwanda Tribunal. And then eventually I came over to The Hague, where a couple of my friends were working here at the Yugoslavia Tribunal and getting to meet the people and understanding how the various parts of these courts uh, work together because the courts are quite divided in terms of their functions and understanding what the various people do. And then armed with that that information, I was able to make a little more targeted uh, job applications. Eventually did an application to be an assistant to a judge and he chose somebody else, but he passed my CV on to the prosecution's office. And the prosecution's office said, all right, let's get this guy in here for an interview. And then I got the job with, with the prosecution. How old were you then? I was about 28, uh, tw- 29 perhaps. So working within the prosecution's office, and maybe you'd like to remind listeners, firstly, why the tribunal was set up in the first place. The ICTY was set up in May of 1993. The reason it was set up was that the former Yugoslavia started to disintegrate and there was armed conflict in Croatia and then armed conflict in Bosnia, a little bit in Slovenia at the time. But as these armed conflicts progressed, they were accompanied by major atrocities, first in Croatia and then to a huge extent in Bosnia. The international community was sort of paralysed in terms of taking military action. They did send in a lot of humanitarian aid, humanitarian convoys, but there was no real effort to bring the conflict to an end as it eventually happened in '95. So I think as it was almost a fig leaf, it was seen at the time that the international community decided to create the first international criminal tribunal since the post-Second World War tribunals at Nuremberg and Tokyo. And that was created in 1993. Um, legally speaking, it was a very novel thing to do because nobody really knew or had ever, frankly, argued very much that the Security Council had the power to create an international criminal court with power over a non-consenting state and to put on trial the head of state or the head of government of a non-consenting state and send them off uh, to imprisonment for life. And that's what the Security Council did in '93, And then they did it again in 1994, with the uh, Tribunal for Rwanda. That's the background to the Yugoslavia Tribunal. Beyond your work, was this something that you'd kept abreast of on the news? or? Yes, I mean, I, I, was, I, I was in college from 90, uh, 1990 to 1994, was when I did my law degree. And, you know, the, our television screens were just dominated by the siege of Sarajevo, the atrocities uh, which were going on in the former Yugoslavia. And then, of course, in '94, the Rwandan genocide. So, yes, this was very much the most catastrophic human rights situation really in Europe for the former Yugoslavia. And uh, the genocide in Rwanda was was probably the worst genocide since, since the Nazi uh, period. So yes, I was very interested in working in that. Now, what kind of work did I do? I was assigned as a, an associate legal officer, they call it, to a senior prosecutor. And my job was to do the writing on legal submissions on behalf of the prosecution, in response to legal submissions, mainly, that the defence would make. Uh, We were focusing on the Bosnian Serb leadership, uh, which is to say Radovan Karadzic, the president of the Bosnian Serbs, Um, Momchilo Krajnik, who was his right-hand man, Biljana Plavzic, who was another member of the presidency of the Bosnian Serbs. And it was those three 
the individuals in particular that we uh, that I worked mainly on, but I was also working on cases against persons who were indicted at the next level down, which is to say, not the trigger pullers on the ground and not the political leaders at the very top, but sort of the mid-level people, some of whom were very famous, like Milan Lukic was one case we worked on, Micho Stanisic I worked on a bit, and a number of other fairly um, serious cases uh, without being leadership cases. Mm. They may not have been leadership cases, but still all the while there are stories and histories associated with those prosecutions. How was it, that level of content that you were absorbing and consuming, having trained in the corporate world, having done your master's, and now you're straight into the ICTY and the work that's associated with that? Well, the, the, the content is, of course, uh, horrific. I mean, it's actually more horrific than, than you expect. Uh, the legal issues are fascinating. Uh, there's scarcely, um, I would say, a legal issue that I've ever dealt with uh, that I found to be uninteresting, whereas, quite frankly, uh, corporate law, let's say, um, securitization of asset-backed receivables, sometimes is not quite as exciting as you'd wish it was. Um, so it's certainly a fascinating uh, factual base uh, that you're looking at and a fascinating legal a set of arguments that you're looking at as well. So together it is a, a fascinating field of work. Can you tell me about some of maybe your professional experiences while working at the ICTY, which have, have left a mark on you personally? Yes, you, when victims would come to testify, you, ha, you, you have witnesses of all kinds. You have witnesses who are insiders, who are members of the forces that committed the atrocities. You have um, witnesses who are internationals, let's say staff of international organisations who have been involved in speaking to the parties to the conflict. Um, but for me, the most interesting category of witnesses were the victims who had survived uh, atrocities, uh, victims who had been through just unspeakable horrors. And meeting them in person was a reminder of why you do what you're doing. And uh, it was that was the most interesting part. But um, it, it also made me very, very aware of just how well international organizations can function if they're given the right level of support. So the ICTY had staff from literally across the world. It is seen, I think, by many as being the most effective of the international courts to date. And when I think back, I, I can see that um, there is always the possibility for international justice mechanisms to work effectively, provided they're given the right level of political and financial support, which is what we have at the ICTY. Mm. And maybe we can we can talk about that later in terms of the finances currently available to the ICC. Yes. From your work at the ICTY, you then became involved in an investigation which led to the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. And this tribunal was set up to investigate the assassination of the former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafi Kariri. The tribunal cost one billion. What did you think of the tribunal and its outcome? It's a very important question, and it's primarily a question to be answered by the Lebanese people. The funding for that tribunal was roughly 50% by the international side and 50% by the Lebanese people themselves. So the first thing is, financially speaking, you've mentioned a billion. Uh, do the Lebanese people think that that was well-spent money? Secondly, a relevant question is to ask, would a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, applying a slightly different standard of proof, 
have been a better response. Truth and Reconciliation Commissions generally apply the standard of proof of balance of probabilities, which is to say, on the balance of probabilities, looking at the evidence, what happened and who was responsible. A criminal trial applies the standard of beyond reasonable doubt, which is to say, have the charges against this accused person been proven beyond reasonable doubt, yes or no? So it really results in a smaller body of evidence is admissible in a criminal trial than the body of evidence which might be used in a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Truth and Reconciliation Commissions can move faster than criminal trials. They can obviously cover a greater range of events if they're given a mandate to do so. So one legitimate question, I think, for the Lebanese people looking back and for all of us looking forward is, would a truth and reconciliation type inquiry such as they had in South Africa have achieved as much, if not more, than uh, one in absentia trial, which is what the STL uh, resulted in? So there are plenty of questions to be asked, but very, very important to keep the Lebanese people to the forefront of our consideration. Mm. But you, you think potentially that it could be a question of whether or not another type of justice would have been more appropriate in this instance? In that particular instance, given that none of the defendants were arrested, uh, I think that question is a legitimate question, yeah. You mentioned Rwanda and the horrific events that unfolded in the country in the 90s. This, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, another UN court, the first international court established to prosecute high-ranking individuals for massive human rights violations in Africa, uh, specifically to prosecute those allegedly responsible for the hundreds of thousands of deaths in Rwanda um, in 1994. Again, how did it feel working on this tribunal? Right, so this was the second tribunal that the Security Council set up, and the last. The first was the Yugoslavia Tribunal, and the second and last was the Rwanda Tribunal in 93 and 1994. The way things are going, it seems relatively unlikely in the short term or medium term that the Security Council would establish a third international tribunal uh, with jurisdiction over a non-consenting state, including jurisdiction to, as I said, issue a life sentence against a head of state or government of a non-consenting state. So legally speaking, the ICTR was very interesting. Being located in Africa, it was located in Arusha in northern Tanzania, I think was important. Arusha is certainly far by road mm. from, from Rwanda. Uh, it's not very far by plane, but by road. So it was still quite inaccessible mm. to the people of Rwanda. Nevertheless, having it in Africa meant that there were more staff. There were many, many defence lawyers, prosecution lawyers, and indeed judges from uh, West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa. So I think it was very important when you look at international criminal justice in Africa to consider the experience of the ICTR. It was quite successful, I think, in taking people from different parts of Africa, as well as Europeans, Americans, Asians, together to deliver some kind of justice uh, in respect of the genocide. Now, the Rwandan genocide was characterized by an extremely large perpetrator population. That is to say, 800,000 people were killed um, many were killed by bullets, but many were killed by machetes. And you need a very large number of perpetrators to carry out a genocide of that kind. Many of the judges, prosecutors, defence lawyers of Rwanda were murdered. Therefore, Rwanda itself was facing an enormous challenge after the genocide ended, which is, what are we going to do with this colossal population of people we've arrested for participation in that genocide? It was a huge 
population of incarcerated people. So essentially the response was threefold. One was the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which was located in Arusha, which took care of the leadership, which conducted trials against those who were charged with participation in the genocide. Some were acquitted and some were convicted uh, at the ICCR. Secondly, you had Rwandan domestic courts, which carried out some genocide-related trials. But thirdly, and quite possibly most interestingly, uh, Rwandans themselves used a traditional system of justice called gachacha, which was a system of justice where the emphasis is very strongly on truth-telling, reconciliation, as well as punishment. But truth-telling and reconciliation probably took more of a centre stage than it does in, for example, a common law trial such as we might have in Ireland, for example. So it was that threefold response to the colossal justice challenge in Rwanda that makes Rwanda such an interesting model to study uh, for the future when we're looking at how to deal with atrocities. Mm. Do you believe that you can have a parallel justice like that? I absolutely do. I do believe. I think it's absolutely essential. I think it's really important that insofar as possible that justice is delivered in courts which command the respect of the victim population and hopefully command the respect of those who are put on trial as well, staffed by fiercely impartial and independent prosecutors and judges, but certainly involving domestic courts and international courts at the same time is a good idea. It's a model which has been followed uh, to some extent in a number of different uh, countries, and uh, it certainly provides a basis for action as, as we move into the future. Had you been to Rwanda during that period? Do, while I worked at the ICTR, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We went to Rwanda and we would be in, interviewing uh, various witnesses. I've interviewed defence witnesses alongside defence lawyers and interpreters, and we would they would be located in various other African countries outside Rwanda. And we went to interview those, and yes, I interviewed quite a few people. Can I just ask you how you felt being there, how you felt the people were, especially after such a huge tragedy? Well, it's remarkable. I ended up going to a jail uh, which held a large number of persons who had been arrested on genocide-related charges, and they are quite famously outfitted in pink, bright pink uh, shirts and, and shorts to make them easily visible in the event of escape. And when I stood there surrounded by maybe, you know, two or three hundred of these people at one stage, it just struck me how normal they looked. They looked like anyone else you'd meet in Rwanda, anyone else you'd meet in Tanzania. They were extremely normal, you know, affable uh, people. There was absolutely nothing to suggest that uh, these were the kind of people who could be persuaded to participate in massacring their neighbours, their students, their teachers, sometimes uh, priests and nuns. And members of their family. Yes. Yeah, members of their own family. Well, it, it, it would depend on the ethnicity, but yes. the... Also fascinating is that priests and nuns were participating in the massacres of mm. members of their own congregation. So overall, it's always struck me that atrocities are not committed by monsters, by beasts, by uh, you know some unknown group of evil people. Atrocities are committed by ordinary people who are led by 
leaders who will lead them down the road to atrocity. That's why it's so important that international justice uh, focuses on the leadership level of responsibility. And of course, incredibly importantly, that international trials are fair to the accused persons, regardless of their level of responsibility, and to victims who are participating in the process. Very interesting what you say there about, you know, prosecuting the leadership, but also I suppose the background to that is that there has been a historical narrative that has led to these leaders being in power. So again, maybe it's also important to look at the history of a country and how it could potentially lead to the situation where we see what happened in Rwanda, hundreds of thousands of people killed within such a short period of time in 1994. And, and you know, what I hear of the country now is that we only know of the genocide there. Yes, yeah. It's always very, very hard to predict in advance if when a massive genocide... I mean, I remember being in... I was actually in Tanzania in January 1994, a couple of months before the, the genocide... But and and there had been peace talks taking place in Arusha, uh, you know, just a few months earlier. But there was no sense by anyone that just four months later we were about to witness in Rwanda the biggest genocide since the Second World War. There was no sense. So, predicting was, was the, there no level of political instability? Like, oh yes, or, yes. And and also just in terms of the. What is perceived to me is like a level of hatred between the Hutus yes. and the Tutsis or yeah. this huge tension. I mean, yeah. was that not visible? Yes. Yeah. There's no doubt that there was great instability both in Rwanda and in Burundi. Neighbor, in, yeah. yeah. Uh, Burundi had witnessed some major massacres in 93. At the same time, I think in early 1994, the, the world was not expecting a colossal genocide such as took place in 100 days starting in April 1994 and I think that's always stuck with me which is we've always got to be very very careful in looking at conflict situations around the world and we have to be aware that instability can turn to a very very seriously uh, murderous situation quite easily and we have to be uh, I think really we need to be putting more resources into preventing these mass atrocities taking place before they take place, rather than, of course, which is necessary, but having justice mechanisms coming in after the atrocities have taken place. So prevention is certainly better than the cure. And the more emphasis we can put into creating conditions of fairness in countries affected by ethnic strife is very important. That's why the rule of law is so important, creating conditions of fairness. We've seen that in Northern Ireland, that it was only where the communities were offered a situation which seemed to guarantee fairness and stability to everyone Mm. that peace really took hold. And I think that has lessons that we can draw from for other conflict situations. Tricky to do, though, when you're also dealing with not necessarily just ethnic tensions, but also things like climate change at the moment, which is leading to a huge amount of of, of strife over resources. You know, it's hard to identify maybe regions traditionally that we would have looked upon, say, for instance, the Balkans, um, where many would argue that there still is no stability there and that this could flare up, you know. Um, but maybe from your experience, this is just something that you're very mindful of. Yes, well, I think with climate change, you raise a very important point. And I think it's increasingly accepted by everyone that climate change is a security issue as well as everything else. Uh, It will affect regional security. 
and will therefore affect national security of many countries around the world. So taking action on climate change is absolutely essential to ensure our own national and regional security as we move ahead. Certainly we do not want to see enormous conflict breaking out as a result of population movements due to... Mm. Uh, displacement. Yeah, displacement over access to water and access to arable land. You know, the, the possibility, the conditions for conflict are unfortunately slightly more likely to happen now as a result of climate change than, than they would have been without climate change. So it's a, it's a very, very urgent issue and it deserves, you know, like a high degree of attention. You're listening to Horsehair Wicks, and today we're speaking to Irish barrister and international judge Fergal Gaynor. Stay with us. You currently work as a reserve chief prosecutor at the extraordinary chambers of the courts of Cambodia, commonly known as the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Indeed, you worked there in 2015 and 2016 as a prosecutor. Fergal, why Cambodia? Why the Khmer Rouge? What, what was and is your interest there? Well, Cambodia, the, the tribunal was set up to handle uh, crimes committed by the Khmer Rouge between 1975, when they came to power, and 1979, when they were overthrown. And it was a uh, very complex negotiation between the government of Cambodia and the United Nations, which eventually led to the establishment of the court, which is staffed by international judges and uh, Cambodian judges, international prosecutors and Cambodian prosecutors, and all the defence teams of international and Cambodian staff. So it was a very, very interesting experiment in cooperation between the United Nations on the one hand, Mm. UN staff, and domestic staff. This is called a hybrid. Correct. It, was this the first time you'd worked in, in this kind of a structure? It was. Mm. And there have been others. The, the distinction between hybrid... Sierra Leone. Yes. So Sierra Leone consented to a hybrid tribunal. Cambodia consented. Uh, we've talked about that Lebanon it consented. And uh, those are the three principal hybrid courts, uh, which are a mixture of domestic and international on their benches among the prosecution staff. So the idea is that you are working hand-in-hand with your national counterpart. And I believe that there was a great degree of success at the Cambodia court because it was a truly hybrid court. You know, the the national prosecutor and the international prosecutor uh, have to discuss all major issues. Sometimes they disagree, and there's there's a mechanism for recognizing that disagreement. The court was unfortunately established quite a long time after the Khmer Rouge was overthrown in 79. And the court only really became operational in 2006. Now, by that time, you know, in the late 1990s, Pol Pot died and Son Sen, another serious leader, he died in the late 1990s. And then shortly before the court really became operational, Tam Mok, another senior leader, died. And then in the major leadership trial at the court, of the four persons arrested, only one has survived to the very end. The other three died of ailments related to their extremely old age and fragile health condition. So it, it's a, a real shame that the Cambodia court could not have started up at the same time, let's say, as the Yugoslavia and the Rwanda court in the mid-1990s, when 
the security situation in, in Cambodia certainly was not as stable then, but at least the main architects of the crimes by the Khmer Rouge were all still alive at that time. So that's that's another message that we really have to remember, and that is justice has to be delivered within a reasonable time after the conflict has come to an end. Um, that's fair to the victims, of course. And of course, once somebody is taken into custody, you must respect uh, the rights of an accused or suspect uh, to trial within a reasonable time and to a fair and expeditious trial once it has begun. Which doesn't, unfortunately, always happen within international criminal justice. Yes, I've, I've, I've written quite extensively about this. I wrote a long article in 2009 uh, criticising quite heavily the length of uh, pre-trial and trial periods at the ICTR in particular, but also criticising pre-trial and trial periods uh, at the ICTY. And my co-author, Do- David Tolbert, and I, we, we set out a number of proposed reforms back then in 2009. We, we can see that th- there has been improvement in um, how trials are handled to make a trial both more expeditious, but also guaranteeing uh, the fundamental rights of the accused, which is absolutely critical if a trial is to be uh, perceived to be legitimate. So it's an ongoing uh, tension, I think, uh, to have a trial which, from the prosecutor's perspective, reflects the totality of the criminal conduct of the accused, but which, from everyone else's perspective, is also a reasonably expeditious trial, and from the victim's perspective, results in justice within a reasonable time after the, the crimes have taken place. Is it a question of resources, Fergal? You know, why, why is it that this doesn't always happen? And in a lot of cases, it doesn't happen in international criminal justice. There's always the question of resources. There's always the question of political support. And there's always the question of just how big is the what's called the crime base uh, that you're dealing with. That is, if you're putting somebody on trial for a murder of one person, that's obviously going to be a much simpler trial in most cases then the murder of maybe 100,000 persons, the forcible expulsion of perhaps two or 300,000 more, the destruction of cultural property sometimes. So we have to take into account that the, these trials are completely different to murder trials or trials involving a serious beating or sexual violence at the domestic level, which are serious trials, and they deserve resources at the domestic level. But at the international level, the trials often, certainly at the Cambodia, Rwanda, and Yugoslavia tribunals, concern criminal campaigns, which are so vast that they defy all comparison to what goes on in domestic courts. Mm. And can be approached in the same way. Yes. You also worked for an NGO, um, you worked for the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, investigating crimes in, in Syria and Myanmar. What, what, what was that work for? What did it amount to? The thinking there was that the conflict in Syria started in 2011. And going into 2012, it was clear that regime forces, that is to say forces under the control of President Assad, uh, were committing what appeared to be widespread and fairly systematic crimes against the Syrian people. And by that I mean putting tens of thousands of people into custody, where huge numbers were facing torture, and considerable number were murdered in custody. As the conflict went on, there was a concern that chemical weapons were being used 
by parties to the conflict and in many cases the party that was believed to be responsible was the Syrian regime, as say Assad's regime. Now the international community was not able to uh, set up an international tribunal about this. There was no referral to the International Criminal Court because Syria is not a state party to the Rome Statute. So the Commission for International Justice and Accountability took the initiative to try to secure that evidence outside Syria in order for a future national or international or regional court to have that evidence so that it can be disclosed in accordance with the normal rules to the defence teams. It can be disclosed to the prosecution and everyone can make their arguments before a panel of impartial judges. That was the idea. Since then, there has been no referral of Syria to the International Criminal Court because the one effort at referral was vetoed at the Security Council. There has been no regional tribunal for Syria. There has been established by the UN, through the UN General Assembly, a mechanism to collect all of the evidence that has been collected concerning crimes which are allegedly being committed in Syria. Now, the Commission for International Justice and Accountability has given a copy of all of this enormous document collection that it has to uh, that entity in Geneva, as well as a series of legal briefs that my team of analysts and lawyers and I were preparing in order to facilitate the future investigation of prosecution of crimes by Assad and his co-leaders. This was really an effort to help a future international criminal court, a future international criminal tribunal, get off the ground earlier. Because a lot of the initial couple of years that the ICTR and ICTY was spent doing exactly that, which is collecting the documentary evidence, interviewing people who had fled from the conflict zone, and building cases, and putting all of that into these what we call pre-trial briefs. So that's what we were creating, and that's what we were doing to help future prosecutions concerning Syria. Was that also the case in Myanmar then? I was involved in the initial design of a similar uh, effort for Myanmar as well, which is to say to collect as much as possible of the evidence, not necessarily of what we call the crime base, which is to say uh, the murders and destruction of property and sexual violence on the ground, although that is part of it, but also what is sometimes referred to as the linkage evidence, which is the evidence of internal communications structures by, in, in the case of Myanmar, the armed forces of the government of Myanmar and the police and the navy who, who are coordinating uh, the commission of crimes on the ground. Our main aim was to ensure that the truth is told. The truth is the essence of justice. And to ensure that the truth is told, I think it's important to get the internal documentation of the authorities who have supposedly carried out these crimes, make that documentation available to the defence and to the prosecution, and then hold a fair trial and let the cards fall where they're going to fall. But the pursuit of the truth is what international criminal justice is all about. You're living in The Hague, mm. home to the International Criminal Court, and you've represented victims from Afghanistan, Palestine, Kenya. Maybe we can narrow in on Kenya. What was your role representing victims at the ICC? I believe that it required you living in Kenya for a time. So the... the um Kenyan uh, experience was really important to me, just to see just how important it is to the very much huge sections of the Kenyan nation that they should see some kind of credible justice process in place in respect of the 2007-2008 post-election violence, which was the 
biggest, most concentrated period of instability, violence and crime that Kenya had seen since independence. So it was a critically important period of Kenyan history, which required a proper uh, justice response, which unfortunately has never been delivered. In 2021, you were nominated by Ireland for the position of prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. A hugely influential and prominent position for anyone in the international space. You didn't get it. It went to Karim Khan. Were you disappointed? How did you feel? Well, for me, the International Criminal Court is bigger than any one person. What's vital is that all of us, whatever role we play, whether we're defence lawyers, whether we're prosecutors, whether we're judges, whether we're uh, victims representatives, is that we all do what we can to strengthen the International Criminal Court. It really doesn't depend on any one figure. Um, I do think the International Criminal Court is, is going through a difficult period. It is going to be a struggle uh, to attract the right level of political and financial support over the next 20 years. But I'm firmly convinced that among ordinary people around the world, there is enormous support for a proper international justice system of which the International Criminal Court is a part. And that's why it's really important that we continue to support the court. You didn't really answer my question, though. I, I, I was uh, very committed to the campaign, you know, to become the prosecutor of the court. I wasn't selected at the time. I think it was a difficult period to be selecting a prosecutor because of COVID. Therefore, it was quite difficult for states' parties to get the full measure of the candidates. Uh, now, in future, of course, there won't hopefully be uh, COVID around, so people will have a greater opportunity to get a full sense of the character of all the candidates. But what's very clear to me, having been through the process, is how much diplomacy takes place in corridors, in informal coffees, informal chats over the, you know, the famous water cooler. And none of that was going on during COVID, uh, whether in New York or, or in The Hague or insofar as it was going on, it was going on to a very, very much reduced extent. So that, that really did affect the conduct of the campaign. And certainly in the future, we look forward to, you know, a campaign which, which allows the state parties to get to know the characters better. We've talked a lot about um, the rule of law throughout this conversation, democracy, various different types of parallel justice. What does the rule of law mean to you? Do you believe in universal standards surrounding judicial norms and values? You will see that the humane conduct of hostilities is deeply embedded in ancient Chinese culture in the Middle East. And you'll see it, you know, in Western culture going back centuries as well. So I do believe that the humane conduct of hostilities is an absolutely universal human value. The protection of people who are not combatants in, in the conflict is really important. The protection of prisoners of war. You have ancient theories such as, for example, if your opponent's chariot uh, loses a wheel, that you don't attack your opponent in those situations. So these are, these are rules which have been going back a very long time. I really believe it's universal. I think that those who raise the argument that we are somehow imposing uh, Western values on other systems are profoundly wrong. I think that's deeply uh, condescending to other systems of justice around the world which have encapsulated, whether in their religious values or in their cultural values, principles of compassion and humanity in the conduct of hostilities since time immemorial. So we are today, thankfully, 
in a position where we have, you know, the Geneva Conventions, the Genocide Convention, we have uh, the ICCPR, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we have a whole raft of different conventions and treaties which protect fundamental human rights, which are adhered to or signed up to and ratified by the vast majority of the world's countries. So we do have a common legal framework for the protection of fundamental human rights. And what's very important is that we do everything we can to enforce that legal framework. So how then do you, do you negotiate something like Sharia law and the rule of law in terms of their differences in administering justice? Well, the, 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 that, that specific question is best answered by people who, who deal with that on a daily basis in the courts of the Middle East and courts where uh, you have aspects of the common law, aspects of the civil law, aspects of Sharia law and the interplay between them. It remains the case that the fundamental principles of the rule of law, which are most important in the international justice field, I think are, are universally respected, which is to say the need for uh, scrupulously impartial and independent judges and prosecutors, the principle that international agreements are to be respected and the principle that parties to an international agreement, insofar as they have a disagreement with another party, need to raise that disagreement and resolve that conflict using the conflict resolution mechanisms which are spelled out in very, very many of these international agreements. Those are essential parts. Virgil, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to speak to you as well. And that was Irish barrister and international judge Fergal Gaynor on the first episode of our new monthly podcast, Horsehair Wigs, with me, Evelyn McCafferty. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can subscribe to our episodes on whatever podcasting app you use. Huge thanks to Irish Aid for making this podcast possible. Until next time, thanks for listening and take good care.